The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier and also his tunic. For the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who it should be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Father, we thank you that we can be here today as your called and gathered people to sit under the teaching of your living word. In Jesus, today we recognize you as Lord over all, and we pray that our eyes will be open to the depth of our sin and our desperate need for you as our only hope and our Savior. Holy Spirit, we pray that today we will join with you in the chief office of the Holy Spirit in making much of Christ, that he will be glorified by the words of my mouth and the meditation before our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
crucifixion of King Jesus is the climax of the greatest true story ever told. It is the most epic display of boundless love colliding with holy justice, divine loss being executed upon indestructible mercy, and the story of measureless death being paid in such a way that no book author, script writer, or movie director could ever have dreamed up a more unexpected or unparalleled narrative art. Everything that God has ever done in all of the world, in all of human history, has been leading to this moment. Every event has been a foreshadowing and anticipation a pointer towards this. All of the laws, events, peoples, prophecies, narratives, poems, the sacrificial and ceremonial systems, the set-apart roles and functions, all of it, looking, leading, So they took Jesus and he went out. It appears that John is giving a pretty straightforward, matter of fact kind of account of this scene, but we as modern readers, with the benefit of the fully completed canon of scripture in front of us, have the benefit of being able to see that John's words are in fact heavy laden with rich fulfillment language. As a side note, a few weeks ago, at the end of February, Bill preached on Hebrews with a sermon titled Jesus is Better, in which he showed us a glimpse into how all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ through the better. Well, I think it's been good for writing my sermon for me and preaching a few weeks ago, so that if you all have had a chance to get it, you can say it all again. You know, they say that all the best preachers are plagiarists. They simply tell you what God has already so that's his fulfillment language. Jesus is going out from judgment to face crucifixion. And he's doing that in part so that the words of Isaiah 53 7 might be fulfilled. He was oppressed, but he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Now I wish that we had time to expound this whole chapter in light of Jesus, because Isaiah 53 is so very clearly a picture of this. Prophecy being fulfilled in detail, even though it was written hundreds of years before it was completed. And Jesus, who Isaiah told us was to be led like a lamb to the slaughter, is the same Jesus who John the Baptist cried, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. But even as Jesus went out, or was led out, as the synoptic gospels all right, we're meant to be reminded of another significant time in history when the one on Jesus' leg was also led out to take the punishment of sin on behalf of the people. But it wasn't a lamb, it was a goat. And it wasn't Passover, it was John the Priest. Leviticus chapter 16 lays out for us how on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would bring two goats to the entrance to the tent of meeting and cast lots for them. One goat would be sacrificed as a sin offering in the prescribed way, and the other goat 
So let's pick up from verse 28. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in wilderness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. C.H. Spurgeon comments on the link between the goat and Christ going out from Pilate by saying, What learn we here as we see Christ's red foot? Do we not see here the truth of that which was set forth in shadow by the scapegoat? Now we see Jesus being brought before the priests and rulers, who pronounce him guilty. God himself imputes our sins to him. He was made sin for us. And as the substitute for our guilt, he bears our sin on his shoulders. So they took Jesus and he went out. And many commentators remark at this point that the language here indicates that Jesus made no opposition of the lamb pastor. But, unlike the lambs of the sacrificial system who were continually slaughtered for sin, and unlike the scapegoat who had the sins of the people imputed onto his nasty ear, Romans 6.10, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all. More on that as we go on. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross. But when it comes to the crucifixion, we know quite a lot about how it was done, partly because it was literally done tens of thousands of times. One of the things that we know is that those being crucified were made to carry the very wood upon which they were going. Further, we know that the vertical beam was already at the execution site being prepared to receive the horizontal or the, the cross beam that the condemned person carried. Carrying this was a continuation of their punishment as the weight and movement of the beam would serve to further open wounds incurred from scourging which Jesus was already Genesis chapter 22, there's the story of another son who, like Jesus, had promised spoken into his life to be God. And as Abraham walked his only son, Isaac, up Mount Moriah, with Isaac himself carrying the wood upon which he was expected to die in obedience to God's plan, he clearly see another manifestation of the sacrifice of God. But as we know, Isaac didn't die because God provided a substitute. Not only is Jesus the true and better sacrifice who died in the place of not only us, not only Isaac, but all of us, but Jesus is the true and better Son who obeyed his Father and carried his own wood to the place where he would be truly sacrificed for all of us. He went out bearing his cross to a place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Jesus wasn't simply subjected to the shame of a humiliating public execution 
He was crucified between two condemned criminals. He was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12. The center was the chief place of honor, and this place, the place that carried the most pain. Where they crucified him. That's all John says about the actual crucifixion. He just crap. Because John isn't concerned with conveying the physical details of the crucifixion, being crucified was commonplace. He's much more interested in the theological implications of the event. What is being accomplished here? Because even more awful than the pain of the physical suffering was that Jesus really was the substitutionary sacrifice for sin and not money for this crucifixion wasn't enough. He endured the full fury of punishment for every sin ever committed by every believer ever. The weight of all those sins crushing down his already broken body. I would also write an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So it was commonplace in crucifixion for the displayed person to bear a sign displaying their crimes as a deterrent to other would-be criminals. But if Pilate could find no fault with Jesus and his final retaliation against the duress inflicted on him by the Jewish leaders, Pilate had this sign fixed to the cross above Jesus' head. The ironic reality here is that the very words the soldiers used to mock Jesus in status and now placed just inches above his head, just like a crown, and the instrument of Jesus' death becomes, in reality, his exaltation as he is lifted up, and the sign declares for every passerby that this is Jesus, the King. Many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified is near the city. And it was written in Aramaic and in Hebrew, in Latin and in Greek. So the sign reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Well, if that wasn't enough to cause an outrage among the Jews who had only just declared that he was crucified, Pilate twists the knife a little bit more by having it written in three languages. But John MacArthur points out that the sign was written in Hebrew, the language of religion, Latin, the language of culture and commerce, and Greek, the language of power. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And so, in this triplicate repetition, not unlike those declarations that we see of God in Scripture, Pilate, not comprehending the full impact of his actions, declares to all the known world that Jesus is king. So far, Jesus has already been shown in this passage to be the true and better man, the true and better sacrifice, the true and better son, and now, over against Caesar, the true king. That's where we are. When soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, the rest of his crew. 
the defendant is seamless, away from one part from top to bottom, so they say to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who is it to be. This is the thing the scripture that says, I divided my garments among them, and I gave them my cast lots. They said, this could be strange. There's so much to say here. There are over 330 prophecies about the person and work of Jesus. And as we've seen, a number of them are fulfilled by people who have absolutely no idea that they're fulfilling them. And this is another such case. This time, the soldiers act in accordance with and in fulfillment of Psalm 22. But the next line of Psalm it reads in verse 16 The dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me, but a fierce courage in my feet. They confound all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and from my clothing they cast it. So the soldiers divide Jesus' garments. The garments would have been the normal everyday carriage for a first century Jew, kilt, sandals, a powder coat, and a head cover. Now, typically, the tunic was a garment worn closest to the skin, like a long undershirt, and it was made usually of two pieces of material sewn together. But when we see the way in which John has so deliberately, up to this point, chosen what to write in and what to leave out, we should pause to ask why he's chosen to make special mention of this tunic. First, there's only one other way in Scripture where the Greek adjective for woven occurs. And that is when the Septuagint refers to the garments of a captive. Second, the fact that the tunic was seamless adds to its Christian nature since the high priest's garments were prepared and uh, created in this way with great care. And last, the decision not to tear the tunic may also be a part of Leviticus 21 against tearing the high priest's robes. So given the strong ways in which Jesus has already been depicted as king, I see no reason why John isn't also using this tunic to point us to the fact that Jesus is the true and better priest, fulfilling in himself the role of the one who would mediate finally between God and man. But in this scene, John details it in such a way that he draws attention to the fact that Jesus is no longer wearing the garment. Because in Jesus, the requirement for Old Testament priests, he, that is Jesus, has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and, and then for those of his people, since he did this once for all through the blood of his servant. As the true and better high priest who has offered the ultimate sacrifice to sin on behalf of the people, God's people are about to be reconstituted around the person of Jesus. As he supersedes the old functions and fulfills them according to Scripture in himself. Now, I want to say one more thing about garments and coverings before we move on. Because this is honestly one of my favorite things in the Bible. The soldiers have divided Jesus' garments. He's now hanging on a cross 
completely naked in the chief place of shame, stripped not only of his clothes, but of any societal honor and dignity that he had left, in a place of complete division, superlatively shame. But isn't this just another fulfillment of the redemptive plan piling up the evidence that this is exactly what God has planned all along? Come with me back to Genesis. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took a bit of and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Come And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Now skip down to verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. At the point that sin entered the garden, Adam and Eve realized the shame of their sinful act made plain to them by the sudden awareness of their nakedness and they sought to cover themselves. What we do in these right? But they were unable to truly do so no matter how hard they tried. In order for their shame to be covered, God had to intervene. The first sacrifice for sin was made. The first storm was blood occurred and the death of the animal was necessary to cover their shame. But like everything, there was a pointer, the type of a true and better sacrifice and the anticipation of the perfect covering that was to come. Now with that in mind, come with me to Galatians 3, 27, and I'm, I'm putting it on the screen because the Christian Standard Bible has my absolute favorite rendering of this verse, and if you haven't made this connection before, I hope you'll see why it's with you. It reads, for those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. Literally, Christ has been put on you to cover your form like a garment. See? I love this rendering because it more clearly brings out our being clothed as a passive receiving act. We don't actively take Christ and clothe ourselves, covering our own shame. That's the point. Rather, by grace, through faith, we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe that He died to pay for our guilt, to cover our shame, exchanging our sin for His righteousness. And instead of shame and nakedness, we receive the gift of being clothed and clothed with Christ. On that cross, Christ is the true and better animal. His blood was spilled in order to cover our guilt and shame and this, not of our own doing, but that while we were naked, shamed in our sin, unable to save ourselves or even cover ourselves, God intervened out of sheer grace, provided Jesus as the one who would spill his blood to atone for our sin, even though there was nothing in him that deserved punishment. And now, when 
I acknowledge by faith the unquestionable truth that Jesus is both my Savior and my Lord, and that I contribute nothing to my salvation except the sin that made it necessary, I am clothed with trust and the right of my sinful best efforts to replace the garment of trust. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Okay, now we can continue. It's standing by the cross of Jesus for his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, again, at first glance, it seems apparent what's happening here. Even though the way in which Jesus goes about it seems at first really odd. I mean, I know if I started referring to my mother as woman, it would not go well. But there's more in this one scene. It's this. We're told about the five people that are here in front of Jesus. Now, aside from asking the obvious question, where are the disciples? One thing is clear. Joseph is no longer alive, and Mary stands widow in front of her eldest son, these five people here. But even while he was accomplishing the great work of redemption, Jesus is cognizant to his responsibility as a son. Even as he was put to shame, he ensured his mother would not be shamed, but protected and cared for. While some are content to move on having seen this, I think we should expect to continue to see John's symbolizing language. Consider that every other statement made by Jesus up to this point has been made in terms of his divine mission. So it's unlikely that these statements are going to be different. One Calvin writes that Jesus' use of the term woman rather than mother was chosen by Jesus as it served to effectually distance their familiar relationship without diminishing the love between mother and son. The term for woman was used by Jesus earlier in John chapter 13 and 20. Is more a term of endearment than perhaps our translation gives it credit for. Some Greek scholars are persuaded that it means something more akin to dear lady, which, while not being overly personal, also isn't really as harsh as the actress would have been. The thought here by Calvin is that after having completed the course of his human life, Jesus lays down the condition in which he has lived and fixes his eyes more fully on the heavenly kingdom. This delivery to his mother and the disciple was therefore intended to distinguish between his status as a son, small x, and his superior status as a human son. Athanasius summarizes this new distinction by reminding us that the Christ who hangs on the cross is both the son of God, but also God. In redefining the relationships around him the way that he does, Jesus is marking the turning point of people's understanding that not only is he the 
son, but now, because of him, all who believe in him are also able to become sons. The title today is, He did it for you. In the morning, thinking about the shame of the gospel. Because in order for the gospel to be good news, we first need to acknowledge the shame of our sin and our desperate need for Once we do, so here is the way Spurgeon summarized the joy of the great exchange between Christ and the sin. He wore my crown, the crown of thorns. I wore his crown. Glory. He wore my dress, nay, he wore my nakedness when he died upon the cross. Now I wear his clothes, the clothes of his feet. He wore my clothes. I wear his clothes. Jesus endured a day of judgment. He was put to shame for you so that. On the final day of judgment, Romans 10 says, If you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and have believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to Friends, when we believe by faith, Good news of the death and resurrection of King Jesus in our place for our sin. God declares us righteous, and where we once stood in the nakedness of our shame, we now stand clothed with Christ's righteous life as a gift of pure grace, not because of anything we do, but solely because of what Jesus has done. Stand amazed at your love, supremely demonstrated for us at the cross. We are undone by your grace towards we who do not deserve it. We rejoice in the gift of salvation and we want to live lives that glorify the crucified King. Help us, Holy Spirit, to fix our eyes on Jesus that in everything we do, we live as those who have had their shame and nakedness covered and are now clothed with the righteousness of Christ. May we live thankfulness and to glorify you. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.